Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you folks, and uh, good to be uh, here together on, uh, on God's day and God's house with God's people. We uh, had Vision Sunday a few weeks ago. Oh, by the way, I've been fighting cold respiratory something for like six weeks, and so just like came back around with a vengeance this weekend. So if I stop to blow my nose or uh, cough away from the microphone, uh, please excuse that. That's the last time I'm going to ask it. I'm going to say that, so I'm just gonna, I'll just get all, you know, like, phlegmy all of a sudden out of nowhere. It's real enjoyable and fun for you folks, too. And the next person that uses this microphone. And so, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we celebrated Vision Sunday here at Cornerstone, which is a time when we take uh, a time out to um, look ahead into the year that's coming and to see what the vision is um, that the Lord has given to us. And uh, like I said, on Vision Sunday, uh, three weeks ago, I guess three Sundays ago, that was a real special time because this vision particularly was something that the Lord had really um, uh, birthed through the uh, community of the elder team over the course of about a year of discernment and work and goodness. And so um, today we're going to talk about um, one of the identities of the church. Uh, There's five primary identities that we see in the New Testament of the church. The church is a, go ahead, a bride, very good, a body, a flock, a temple, and today, very good, that was, you even did it in order, like you, you left the one I'm going to teach on today for the number five, uh, the, the church is a family, um, so this is the thing where if you ask God, God, what is your church, he's going to respond with one of those five pictures, the church is my flock, the church is my family, the church is my body, the church is my temple, uh, the church is my bride, right, one of, those, one of those five pictures, and over the course of the last, I don't know, six months or so, um, while we've been going through Jeremiah, Justin's been like, we need some, we need some good New Testament grounding, you know, as we go through this book of mourning and of prophetic ministry. And so I've had the joy to, to do that and bring these five different uh, identities. Well, the vision that God has given to us in moving forward into 2017 um, mirrors really closely to uh, the identities of the church. So I thought it would be good for us to review those today as we head into our time of teaching. So Justin, could you put, this is a... Uh, um, Cornerstone's identity. In other words, so, so this is who God sees us to be. Let's read this together out loud. Cornerstone is the bride of Christ and a body of worshipers who are being fit together as living stones into the temple of God. So there was a season when we were really focused on uh, being rooted in sonship. And um, I don't know, between 2010 and 2015, 2016. Um, and that's still very important. We're not leaving that at all but just one of the points of identity that we heard God comp- or, uh, uh, emphasizing um, was this idea of we are the temple of God. And what does it mean for us to, to be the temple the way that God uh, has designed his church to be that? So then our vision, as a, as a result of that identity, we see this. Let's all together. We long to see Cornerstone alive in their sacred union with God, discovering and stewarding the revelation of his heart and mind interceding for his church and the world. And of particular import uh, that we talked about was this idea of intercession. What's intercession? Very good. Everybody all together. Bringing heaven to earth. Everyone. Hand motions. Hand motions. Bringing heaven to earth. Very good. That's intercession. Bringing heaven to earth. Uh, It's this idea of connection, connecting places that are open. The church stands in that spot when we intercede in prayer, when we intercede in actions, when we intercede in attitude or in spirit. We're bringing heaven to earth. Uh, Next slide, please. This is our mission. All together. 
The mission of Cornerstone is to be a catalyst of human flourishing through walking in the dominion of grace, leading others to enriched fulfillment in Christ, and creating, reframing the culture around us. So uh, again, this is something that we talked about, these words, the idea of human flourishing. Uh, The purpose of power is for human flourishing. The purpose of power is not for self-gain or for us. We're, We're a powerful body of Christ in order that others might flourish. Others uh, around us, others in our immediate city, county, state, around the world, globally. Um, the church exists for the purpose of human flourishing. And, and our values and who we are um, exists so that people can walk more and more deeply into human flourishing, which is only found in Christ. Um, and so as we align with him, and as God uses us, what it means to be a catalyst, a tool, um, we ourselves walk in a dominion of grace, lead others into deeper enrichment in Christ, and then we look to be world changers. We look to create better culture around us. We don't stand as people who just condemn the world or who just like sit, stand back from the world, but we, we engage it with the hope of creating something better. Amen? All right. So in quick review, excuse me for a second. In quick review, we've talked about four identities of the church to this point. The church is a flock. So the church is the flock of God. We, we are under his care. He is our shepherd. And the big thought for that teaching, all the, reaching all the way back to June, was this one. My sheep hear my voice and they know it. My sheep hear my voice and they know it. A lot of people say to themselves, how do I know if what I'm hearing is God or me? Well, God, does, God never draws that dichotomy. God never tells you, be very careful for yourself that you're not hearing your own voice instead of mine. Right? You, you won't find that in the scriptures. But what he does tell you is that you should have deep confidence in the fact that if you're his sheep, you know his voice. And so if you're hearing the Lord speaking something and asking him, God, is this you or is this me? Well, the question is, 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 is it his voice? Is it his voice? Now, oh, thank you. An accurate point, an accurate statement at that point might be, I don't know what God's voice sounds like. Ah, okay. Now we've got something that we can work with. I, I get that. I get that. Maybe there isn't a connection there. Maybe, maybe you've never realized what the voice of the Lord sounds like or how to hear the voice of the Lord. Great. But you do need to know this. As a Christian who is part of the flock of God, you can live with a deep confidence in hearing God's voice because God's sheep know his voice, and they follow it. God's sheep know his voice, and they follow it. We also talked about uh, the church being the bride of Christ. We talked about that identity. And the key part in that one is that you and I are loved. Right? You and I are loved with an everlasting love because God chooses to love we, his bride. Right? And the longer you're married, the more you understand choosing love. Right? Because <laughs> there are certainly ups and downs and ins and outs of what it means to be uh, in a spousal relationship. And sometimes you don't really like each other. And sometimes you're not sure that you love each other, but you always choose the love for one another because it's the covenant that holds us together, right? It's not our love for each other that holds us together. It's the covenant that holds us together. If there's love within that covenant, wonderful. In fact, I hope so. (laughs) If there's not, the covenant can still hold. The covenant can still hold, and we could spend the rest of today with couples coming up here and giving testimony to the fact that the love wasn't there, but the covenant held, right? And, and that, that's a beautiful, beautiful testimony um, that we have. 
Uh, we also looked at the identity that the church is the body of Christ. The church is, is, is the body of Christ. And the idea here is that the church is receiving direction. The church is, we are not the head. We are the body. And so the connectivity that happens between us and, and the Lord is absolutely primary. I had the craziest experience this week, um, this past Thursday night. I was with a church, um, and this church is sort of beginning to experience a movement of prayer in their body and a movement of uh, prophetic ministry in their body, and they're not really sure about it. They don't come from that. They come from a much more conservative uh, interpretations of Scripture and, and not really sure why they believe what they believe, but, but like, there's this weird stuff that's happening, and they can't ignore it. And so they're asking us, like, what is, what's this about? How, how does this work? So we were sitting there and talking about the way that the Lord speaks and how God speaks through all kinds of crazy things, through dreams and visions and, and the community of faith itself and the scriptures and, and, and directly to our own spirits. And you can have trust. And there was this, uh, just this uh, man there with just this golden heart that really wanted to hear God's voice. And he was just like, I, I, I really want to hear it. I'm just afraid of it. I'm just afraid of the, that I won't that I won't hear it. And oh, I should have prefaced it with this. We're all everybody's sitting in the room. There's about a dozen of us, and everybody's got Apple devices. There's iPads and iPhones everywhere. And at that, when he said that, nobody touched any device. Right when he was talking about this, Siri said, "I'm sorry, but I've lost connectivity temporarily." Out of nowhere. Right while this guy was talking. Like, and nobody said the word seriously. You know, have you ever done that? Where you have like the voice command on and Siri's like, how can I help you? you know? Nobody touched anything. This guy's talking about wanting to have a stronger connection to God. And Siri speaks up. I'm sorry, but I've temporarily lost connectivity. It was awesome. It was, it was so cool. It was so cool. That's what the body's about. The body's about connectivity. All right? the, the body's about being connected. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12. And the body is also about maturity. It's about growing into something. It's about growing into maturity. But we are not made to remain children. Right? We are meant to move forward into adulthood. Uh, and what that means in Christ um, is we talked about that day. Um, and then we also talked about the temple. Uh, the church is the temple of God. And the idea behind temple is the idea of cutting. The word temple in Hebrew means to cut. So the, the, the church is meant to be a place of brokenness. The church is meant to be a place where we all come together with our brokenness, and our brokenness, our brokenness meets Christ's brokenness, and by his brokenness, our brokenness is healed. And that's why we take the sacrament every week. That's why we come to the table every week to be reminded of the fact that we are the temple of God, and as the temple of God, we are the place of cutting. We are the ones who are broken, and it's our own brokenness, it's our own sin that breaks us, and Jesus, the sinless one, chose to be broken for us. So that through his brokenness, through his broken body and his shed blood, we might receive healing from our brokenness, just this beautiful identity. So we then, as people who house the brokenness, we then house the presence. And that's what the temple is, that we, we are the house of God. I think that's it. Let's move forward. Today we're going to talk about the fact that uh, the church is a family, right? The church is a family. Um. There's a lot of different ways to think about family as we step toward it. Like when I said that word just now, um, everybody in this room got a different picture. Because right? everybody in this room comes from a different family situation. And I want to honor that. Like I just want to be right, right up front with the fact that some of us, we think about family and we have like just warm, wonderful thoughts. 
Some of us hear the word family and feel nothing but pain. Some of us have deep confusion from the roots of our family. Some of us, uh, it was our family that brought about our greatest points of clarity and identity. Some of us are somewhere in that continuum. Um, When God chose to build the world, he chose the institution of the family whereby to do it. That's interesting, right? And there's a lot of things that God, the first thing God made was, was the family. The first thing God made was the family. Yeah, and, and as such, he, he brings all of the people into it and honors them all um, rightly in that space. And so men and women all together equally receive the same uh, mandate, let them rule, right? Male and female is the image of God created, and, and God, is, God is working and building what it means for the family to be a family. And then it gets broken, right? And so as the health of families increases or decreases is oftentimes how we see society increase and de- or decrease in health. And, and the goodness that comes into a society is oftentimes channeled through family structures. And the hurt that oftentimes comes through is, is, is it comes through family structures. When God chooses to call us the family of God, it, it's such an interesting thing. It's such an interesting concept. Um, take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. You folks have heard me talk about the importance of naming and of uh, um, calling out someone's identity just over and over. And I want my children to obey, not just because I want them to conform to me or because I'm some power-hungry person, but I want them to obey because I see within their identity the need to align. I mean, that's what parents do with children. You, you, like, you are my son. I name you my son. As such, I am your authority. So take the trash out. Right? And it gets that basic. When, when, when those even most basic of things start to get just off skewed just, just a little bit, when I stop naming my children or when I stop naming my wife, Sherry, you are not fearful. You're experiencing fear right now. But in Christ, you are actually courageous. In, in Christ, we can, we can do this together. You know, that's who you are. I'm naming her. I'm calling her identity out, not in a challenging, shameful way, but in a positive, like, reinforcement way. That's what it means to encourage. You put courage in someone. You encourage them. And the most primary way we see that is through naming, through naming. This is interesting because of what Paul prays here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom, what's the next two words? Every family, every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying this prayer in, in light of the structure that the church is a family. What does he call God in verse 13? He calls him a father. And he says that every family in heaven and on earth has been named by this father, right? This is all familial work. This is all familial concepts. You and I are sons of God, right? You and I are together in the family of God. You and I call each other what? Brothers and sisters, right? Brothers and sisters. And the more Baptist you are, the more you use those words. 
right? Brother so-and-so and sister thus-and-such will now, you know, do this or do that. And, you know, it's almost like a formal title. And uh, one of the most interesting things, <laughs> well, I won't tell that story. All right, I'm going to keep moving. All right, so... Uh, this idea of family is, is everywhere is everywhere in Scripture, but I just want to point out the fact that every family on heaven and, in heaven and on earth is named. Every family, not Christian families. You see that? Every family. Every single one. This is, th- th- there, is no, there is no point of like, um, um, you know, saying the magic words and suddenly being in to the blessing and naming of God for what the family is meant to be. God's heart and God's mind and God's intention is the same thing for every family on earth. And that's that that family would be filled with the fullness of God. And that the fullness of God as expressed in that family would be love. The purpose of the family is to house the love of God. What's the purpose of the family? To house the love of God. Families live in houses, right? The purpose of the family is to house the love of God. And we ourselves, the church, are a family. And we talk about the fact that we're a temple and we host the presence, but we also house the love. And I'm sure some of you have these things on the walls in your home or you've seen it before, but like the Lord takes a house and he makes it a, a home, right? He makes it a place where, where, where you belong. And what is it that, that makes that transition happen? What takes a, a structure and makes it a home? It's the, it's, it's, it's the love that exists therein. It's the life of the family that exists therein. It, it can actually transform things and move things and shift things. The more that we think about the church as a family, the more that we can understand some nuances to it. So the church is a family. Let's think about this from the Trinity's perspective. Um, when you think about the church as a family, who is God in that picture? Who's God the Father? It's pretty obvious, right? I mean, don't get this one wrong, folks. It, it's right there. It's, he's the Father. I mean, he's the Father. He, he's, he's the namer. He's the namer. It's, it's, it, he's the one that is the identity bringer. All right? God the Father is the father of his family. Who's God the Son? Heir. That's good. And uh, true, the heir is always the firstborn. That's right, firstborn and the inheritance. The firstborn receives a double portion of the inheritance. Do you know why? It's not because like mom and dad love, uh, love him more, and it's not because like, God thinks that the firstborn is extra special. You receive a double inheritance as the firstborn because caring for the parents in their old age falls to the firstborn's responsibility. And those are the resources that he or she will need in order to offer that care later in life. So it's not like you get more, it's that you actually you do get more, more responsibility, right? more, more opportunity to give honor back. You lead your siblings in uh, caring for the parents when they get an old age, and that's the beauty of, of being the firstborn. Think about that in regard to Jesus. Jesus receives a double portion, a double inheritance in order to literally care for the reputation of his father to care for the life of his father, to steward the life that exists within God and to be a channel of that life to the world. He, he, he receives the inheritance. You and I in Christ receive the same inheritance. Take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. 
Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's family. All right? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. That's family. As sons, that's family. By whom we cry, daddy, daddy. That's family. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are family. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. We are joint heirs with Christ. What what does Jesus inherit from God? Because of his life, the cross, the resurrection, what does Jesus inherit? Inherit. What is Jesus? What are, what are components in Jesus' inheritance? Just call them out. What's that? Grace? Yes. Standing. Right? A position. Authority. Majesty, priesthood, what else? Wisdom. If Jesus hadn't died and, been, and risen from the dead, would he have received an inheritance? If Jesus hadn't specifically died on the cross, would he have received an inheritance? No, he would have been disobedient to his father. Right, But because he followed through... He received an inheritance. The inheritance that he received particularly is that of authoritative power to lead. That is the inheritance of the sons of God. Authoritative power to lead. The firstborn receives that inheritance and then walks in the authority that comes with it. All that Jesus inherits, you inherit. Favor, grace, goodness, life, victory, power, righteousness. Fully set apart, fully holy. Like, that's who you are in Jesus. Fully sanctified, that's Christ. Glorified, absolutely. Complete honor, you better believe it. Exaltation, yes. This is Christ's inheritance. This is your inheritance. He is the one who purchased that for us. The Spirit is the law of the family. The law of the family. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. A lot of us Christians run around going, we're not under law, we're not under law, we can do whatever we want, isn't that great? No, you are under law. You're under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. You are no longer under the law of the Spirit and death. Folks, you have a law in your home, right? I hope so. It's mom and dad's law, and you grew up under mom and dad's law. And we could all talk about experiences that we've had in our lives not abiding by the law of the family, right? And there are things that result from it. My parents' favorite thing to do was to make me write essays, right? It, after a while, after a while, you know, you got to learn in different ways. So, so washing dishes and writing essays, right? That was, that was the law of my parents in the home. Jesus God has a law, the law of the spirit of life. 
So now we live a different way, but we are bound to something. And that law of the family is the law of the Spirit. It's the way that he calls us to be. We're going to talk more about this a little bit later. All right, so word, fellowship, ordinance, and prayer. These are the four things that we see the early church devote themselves to in Acts chapter 2. These are the, uh, the, these four things, the word, fellowship, ordinance, and prayer. And in regard to each of the identities in Christ, these concepts have different nuances, fuller nuances. So what is the word of God in light of the fact that the church is a family? The word is identity. The word tells you who you are. And the word holds you accountable to your identity. The word says that this is you. And this over here, this is not you. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are now a free child of God. So don't be held captive anymore by the old things. Be held captive by Christ. That's your identity. The word of God in our midst is that of identity-based living, an identity-based church. We must stop telling people what to do and start telling people who they are. How you view you is how you live. If you view yourself as low, then you will live low. If you view yourself as an exalted son of God, you will live as an exalted son of God. We are in a constant identity-forming atmosphere and shaping process through the word of God. This, this book is meant to refine your identity. When you have questions about who you are or when you see falseness about who you are, this is the place to get righted and to get adjusted, to get put back in line from your identity, right? an identity perspective. What is fellowship? What is fellowship in light of the church as a family? Very good. Very good. Relationships. Members as persons. Right? Members as persons. Also meaning, on some level, incarnational presence. Let me get this. What is the incarnation? Think about it. It's a basic. It's the right answer. God becomes human. That's right. God becomes human. Um, right? God, God actually makes himself flesh and dwells among us. That's the idea of the incarnation. So incarnational presence means what? Human presence. Human presence. It's, it's the fact that like flesh and blood is actually there. Right? Flesh and blood is actually there. How many of you value meals with your family? Right? All you that didn't put your hand up, we're judging you. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, th- I think we all do on some level or another. Why? It's, it's an incarnational presence. Our kids are all teenagers now, and incarnational presence is getting more challenging. You know, we, we used to have like five, six dinners, you know, we'd all sit down and we would talk and we would play high-low or we would ask about weeks or days, those sorts, of, those sorts of things. And now incarnational presence is, is more of a challenge. But I tell you what, when we don't get it, we feel it. You, you can feel it when you're distant from one another. 
You can feel it. Like, like, like flesh on flesh relationship is how a family works. It, we're all up in each other's junk. Right? We, we are all in this together. And, and you being valued as a person instead of an idea, that's really important. Right? And we could take this one and really extrapolate it for a long time, but I'll just extrapolate it one direction, offend all the parents in the room, and then move on. Um, which is this, parents, we must be very careful that we treat our children as persons and not as objects. And we must be very careful that we, do, that we treat our children as persons and not as objects. You cannot discipline and nurture an object. So if you're trying to, if, or if we together on some level are trying to, to mold our children into something that we think that they should be, instead of drawing out from them what God has already made them to be, then we easily become objectifying in regard to our kids. Because now it's our picture over God's picture. The role of parenting is to look so deeply into God's heart and to look so deeply into the heart of your child that as a parent, you mold and shape so that this aligns with this. And, and, and you're nothing more than a compass. Right? It's, not, it's not helpful to get enmeshed. That's not your identity. Their success is not your success. Their academics are not your academics. Right? Their discipline is not a reflection on you as a person. It's to know God's heart so deeply and to look within them and see his design or her design in Christ so deeply that you can actually draw and pull it out. And that's the discipline and nurture of the Lord. That's why Luke 2.52 can make sense. Jesus, the Son of God, as a child, Luke 2.52 says that he grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and men. Like, how does the Son of God grow in stature and wisdom and favor with himself? Well, it's by this. It's by, it's by being drawn more fully out. And the discipline and nurture that we exist in as parents is about that. It's about knowing God's heart. You love your children best when you seek God. You love your children best when you seek God. The ordinance. What's the ordinance in the church as a family? I would say it's the family meal. The family meal, the ordinance, the sacrament, communion. It's the family meal. This is the time that we all come together and we eat. And what does a family do when it eats? It's, it talks, it celebrates, it remembers who it is, it, it catches up, it's with one another, it's present, it's there. And here we are, the family of God, coming together again on this day to partake of the family meal. The, sacri- the, the church is the family of God and we gather together to eat together. Have you ever thought about this? Um, you know that there, there, there's an old uh, um, verse that we've gotten used to using in evangelism. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will, uh, I will come in and I will eat with them and he with me. Beautiful. Great. Except that it's absolutely nothing to do with people who don't know Jesus. Those verses are written to a church. Those verses are written to people who already know God. Those, those verses are written to people who have a relationship with the Lord and they've fallen away from him and they've closed off the doors of their hearts. And now God is saying, if anyone will open this door, I will come in and do what? What? Fix his life or, or make him feel really bad about the fact that he fell away or, or I will come in and make him a great world changer. 
No, I will come in and I will eat with him. That's God's heart and desire. It's, let's sit down together and have a meal. Let's sit down together and dine. Let's together join over food and drink and enjoy this interchange and exchange. Prayer in regard to the church as a family is corporate worship. Corporate worship. This matters. Corporate worship matters. This is the time when the family gets together and together exalts Father. This is what we do. There's been a massive movement of individualism in the church over the course of the last hundred years, and it's killing us. Where people are saying, like, it's like church is a thing, going to church is not a thing, and what I'm talking about is exactly the problem, right? Because we have gotten very used to going to church. Folks, you don't go to church. You, you did not come to church today. The church came to a central place. Great, wonderful. But when we say go to church, that makes the church into a building. And, and it's sort of like there's this weird thing that happens in this place where we all together come together, and now this becomes our identity. This is not our identity. If this place burns down to the ground, we are still the church. And we still come together for the purpose of corporate worship. And if we have to have it on Cumberland Street, so be it. Because the people of God cannot forsake, forsake the coming together for corporate worship. This is the time when the family comes together to exalt our Father. Corporate worship should be an absolute no-brainer when it comes to the way that we engage. It's just sort of like, yeah, I mean, how else would it work? God's made us a family, a corporate entity together. And we come together in order to talk about the things of dad and to eat with dad and to sing to dad and to talk to dad. And this is what we do. And we can go out there and do it, and it's great. And we can get together in smaller groups and do it, and it's great. But once a week, dad's got a special day and a special place that we've set aside. And we come and we talk to him and we hang out with him and we hear his teaching and this is the stuff that he's told us and we want to learn more from it and we sing and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Corporate worship. We together come together for the cutting, for the presence, for the fellowship, for the word. All four of the things on the screen right, happen when the church comes together and they happen corporately. Mission, the mission of the church as a family. What's that? Okay, to house the love of God. Excellent. And that's expressed in the original family mandate. Back to Genesis chapter 1. Our role is to multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. Multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man, I'm in verse 26, sorry. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
multiply, fill the earth, fill the earth and have dominion. We, the church, the family of God, are called to multiplication. The idea of making disciples, the idea of bringing people into the same loving family that you and I are a part of is core to who we are. Life does not happen to the church. We are called to make things happen as the family of God. We have taken a reactive posture, and we need to have an active posture where what is coming against us is not something that is a threat to us on any level, but rather we receive that and say, God, who are you as father in this? And what does it mean for us to have dominion over that? We fill the earth. We multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. The idea is always more worshipers before the throne of God. It's always about more worshipers before God's throne. We are a missional people who are called to multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. Not make converts. Right? Multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. That's what we're about. Transformation. Life. Goodness. Fullness. Believing that the family of God that he's made it to be can actually be it. So that a world without poverty is a, not a pipe dream to the church because we're that connected to the Lord. Right? That a world without division, that's not a pipe dream for the church because that's God's heart. A world without hatred, where love reigns, like that, that's not just a pie-in-the-sky thought. That's a transformation that the church can actually start to actualize in our world as we multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. The leadership of the church, as the church, as a family, I would suggest is the son-father dynamic. Son-father dynamic. So think about the prodigal son. Prodigal son, both boys are lost, older and younger son. They come back, they receive the goodness of the father. Well, the younger son does. The older son, we don't know what happens to him. He just gets angry and resentful because uh, he thinks that he's been perfect. Um, both boys, though, have the same call, and we all have the same call as well, which is actually to become the father. The goal for all of us in our spiritual development is to get to the point where we are fathering, where we are birthing, where we are growing other people. A good question in your life is like, who are you spiritually developing? If you're a follower of Jesus, who are you pouring your life into? And, and what, what does it mean for you to be in those per, that person's life, for that person to be in, in your life? Uh, away from discipleship, right? Discipleship does not exist. That, that's not a word in the Bible, and it's, we've created a systematized like, category of books that mean discipleship. Like, let, let that be what it is over there. But in the meantime, think about this. God has brought people into your life, in and out of your life, in different seasons and ways of being. You've experienced this before with people in your own life. Somebody loved and helped you grow. Who are you helping love and grow? And what are the things in your life that fight against that? You know what every family in this room will say about itself? One common thing that every family in this room will say about itself is this. We are busy, right? We love being busy. We act like we don't. We're liars. If we didn't want to be busy, we wouldn't. You do what you want to do. Life doesn't happen to us. You know, this is where we are. We're all busy. We're so busy that we miss the people that God brings to us. We're so busy that it's just sort of like, it's this overlook kind of a thing. Like, what does this exist for? Why is this person here? I don't know. 
I'm going to the next thing. And let me tell you, this is the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, the, the, the rapidity, which I feel like my life moves sometimes. And then when I think about the fact that, who, who did I miss today? You know, or, or why am I in this person's life regularly, but not this person's? You know, that, 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 that's a really good question. What is it this person gives me that this person I don't think can? You know, I don't even ask the Lord about it. Just sort of like, I have time for this. I don't have time for that. God calls us to the son-father dynamic. And what the father understands is what his children need in the moment. You know, dad's not always there. Dad leaves and goes off to work, right? He comes back, he engages, he goes out and he provides. He comes back and he engages. You know, mom goes out, she engages. She comes back, she provides. The parents, it's not, it's not this idea of, um, of building um, uh, children-centric homes. It's not that at all. It's the idea of the flow. And who is in my life and where are they at in their development and what does it mean for me to understand that and to join with God in that? Lastly, this is the point I've been trying to get to all morning. Application, which is funny because I usually hate application. I always tell you folks that. Um, But I do have an application for us this morning. I believe that the application for the church as a family is this singular word and it's one of the more important things that we need to possess for where we currently are. And it's the concept of vulnerability. Excuse me. I, I would suggest that the key to being a healthy family is, is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Um, you know, in pastoral ministry, I've counseled dozens and dozens of couples, and one theme in and through all of those is what self-protection, what self-protections exist between him and her. Because we, we hurt one another, and we have conflict with one another, and then we learn to build walls so that you can't hurt me again like that. And, and not only that, but we actually bring self-protections with us into the relationship. So not only do we hurt one another, but we've been hurt in the past. And our childhoods, or people in our lives, or our own parents, or whatever it is, and certainly our, all those people certainly have, have hurt us. And we bring different ways of being self-protective as a result of that. And so we bring our self-protective walls into our relationships. And we say then to our, our new spouses, oftentimes, like, don't cross this. And if he or she does, then we find out a way to self-protect better. Oftentimes, we don't even know that the self-protection is there. And the division happens, and we don't know why it happens. And it turns out that it's because there's self-protection in that place. Vulnerability is not transparency. There's a difference. Vulnerability is not emotional vomiting. Vulnerability is not um, living life uh, just uh, flayed open for the whole world to see. Vulnerability and transparency are, are, they're close to being with each other. Like couples in marriage, we are to be transparent. That's what it means to be naked and not ashamed. Like it's not physically naked. It's, It's that you're completely open. It's that there's nothing hidden. Um, vulnerability is, is transparency with boundaries. Right? Vulnerability is transparency with boundaries. And so in vulnerability, what I learn is that the key to love is to take risks. And those risks, that's vulnerability. It's an opening of myself to someone else with the potential to hurt me. And understanding that even if that person does hurt me, 
I'm still going to stay in this relationship. And I'm still going to be open to this relationship. This is the core of a family. When we as families can't live in vulnerability with one another, we end up building self-protections. And when we build self-protections, we end up distancing ourselves from one another. And when we distance ourselves from one another, that's a removal of incarnational presence. And when we remove presence, then we remove the ability to love. And then we have a lot of people in a lot of places not experiencing God's love. And it's got to do with the fact that we're all running around so hard and so fast that we are trying to self-protect. And by self-protecting, we lead ourselves into a path of absolute loneliness and isolation because vulnerability is too risky. It's too risky. A big word in psychology and pop psych- or psychobabble today is the word safety. Like, I'm looking for a safe place where I can belong. People look for that in a church. They want a safe place where they can be. You know, I was wounded at my last church. I want to, I'm looking for a place where I can be safe. Folks, look at me. There is no safe place. Safety is an illusion. If you are in a relationship with a person, you will be hurt. It will happen. There is no safe place in humanity. We are broken. We are sinful people. We do hurt one another. And we can get really superficial to try and act like it, but when we get superficial, then we lose vulnerability. When you lose vulnerability, then you lose risk. When you lose risk, then you lose love. And then what do we have? We've got going to church. I'm done with going to church. I'm very interested in being the church. I'm very interested in returning to vulnerability and to appropriate risk, understanding this, that in humanity there is no safe place, but in God there is only safety. And so when my identity is derived not from you and not from who you say that I am or from who I say that I am, but when my identity is derived from the Lord, there is a security in that that allows me to be vulnerable toward my brothers and sisters in appropriate ways. Vulnerability tells me that there's a risk here that I could be hurt. There's also an opportunity here that we could really understand and love one another in some really incredible ways. And so to to, to understand that God alone is my safe place and that if I'm with persons as people, then there is going to be risk and there is going to be hurt that happens That brings me to a place of like, well, then who's going to protect me? And the answer is, is God's going to protect me? And the question is, well, what happens when when I'm still hurt by other people? And the answer is, that's the beauty of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the most powerful force in the entire world. That's why we come to the table here. The family of God soon in our service is going to come to the family meal And we all together are going to say before one another and before the Lord, I am broken. And so are my brothers and sisters gathered around me. And when we risk, we sometimes hurt each other. But we are not what hold one another together. He is. And it's his blood and his righteousness and his body. He's the one that holds us together. And so us being vulnerable is key and crucial to what it means to us to live as the family of God. There's a brutally important application to this um, that I'm going to make at this point. 
that I think is really important for us to begin to consider as a church. And by that, I'm talking both a capital C church and a lowercase c church. And it has to do with the fact that we just cut off as a country all ability for the most hurting of the hurting to come in here and find help. We're doing this on the idea of we're too vulnerable. We're too vulnerable. And people that come to our countries from these other countries that we're no longer receiving people from, be it refugees or not, that we are looking at them as a threat instead of people who need help. Has our country experienced pain? Absolutely. Have people from outside come inside and committed crime? Yup, for sure. And that's exactly the way God designs nations. Think about the Old Testament. Core to God's heart and core to a family that's a redemptive family is hospitality. Is the idea that the alien is allowed in. Israel was surrounded by enemies. Israel was surrounded by people who wanted to do it harm. And when those people needed a place to be, they came to Israel, and it was Israel's job to receive them in the midst of the risk, in the midst of the vulnerability. What does it mean for the people of God, for the American church, to have that kind of a heart that says, yes, we are vulnerable. We can self-protect if we want to. We can put those things up. But at the core, the church is called to be a vulnerable place. Nations are called to be vulnerable. That's what it means to have a nation whose God is the Lord. The Lord himself is vulnerable to the hurts of people. Literally opens. Jesus doesn't say wall yourself off from your enemies. He says to love them, to pray for them, to engage them. The whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan is you go toward those who most want to hurt you. You remain open. You remain aware. You step toward something that is a great risk. That's vulnerability. And the church at this point, we need to begin to think about what it means to love people about what it means to truly engage and be vulnerable outside of ourselves. The political stuff is the most blatantly aware over the course of the last weekend. But let's also be aware of the fact that we are still the, the most divided institution in America is the church. That's all based on self-protective walls. We still exist with over 35,000 Christian denominations most of which exists because we have arguments and walls about the covenant and the way we remember it. And we've built self-protective walls and things all over the place that keep us divided, warm, safe, not vulnerable. Not vulnerable. And in that place of risk is exactly where we find God. It's exactly where we find what it means for us to be a family. Because the family is meant to be a place of vulnerability. It's meant to be a place of risk. It's meant to be a place where forgiveness is common culture. 
where awareness of frailty is, 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 is just absolutely, it's there. You know, where, where mom and dad aren't hiding things from each other. Where kids and parents are able to be real with what's going on in given situations. Where there can be humility that seeks help from other places. Where we can be a part of a larger, broader, fuller family. This is what it means for us to be the family of God, is to be vulnerable. You invite the risk. You stay open to the hurt. And we will get hurt. It will happen. And we stay in it. Because he stayed in it. He didn't quit. The core of the family is this. You ready? This is nuts. Jesus himself goes to Gethsemane. And he knows what's coming in the cross. He knows the horror of what awaits him. And he looks at his dad, his father, daddy, and says, I do not want this experience. Please don't make me do this. The pain will be too great. And then this father looks at his, this son looks at his father and says, but regardless, I will choose you. I will choose you because I love you. So not what I want, what you want. That's a family. These two persons who understand who they are, the roles that they're called to, and what is required to risk something amazingly dangerous for people who aren't even a part of that family yet. And to be vulnerably open. Embracing the pain. Stepping toward us, we, the ones who caused the hurt, inviting their presence into our homes. <laughs> and God's saying, come, come be a part of this. Be a part of this. I'm not worthy. No, you're not, but he is. And you will find rest and love and safety for your soul like you've never, ever known. So come, come and join. Come be a part. Come be a part of my family. I love you. The beauty of the heart of the Father is that it remains open, vulnerable, and aware of each one of us and inviting this, inviting over and over this engagement with him to know him as our true, true father. The invitation exists today. This isn't about getting saved or not getting saved. You, no matter who you are, each and every one of us has an invitation to a deeper level of vulnerability with God today that says, Lord, teach me, show me. Like, I'm hurting. I put my walls down. Come into this space of fear. Come into this space of hurt. And knowing that that's a risk. And God only brings love and goodness. So as we leave here today, the question is, is how do we, as the family of God, together embrace 
the vulnerability of what it means to be family. Remember, this is always about more in the family. More worshipers before the throne of God. More at the dinner table. More receiving the covenantal awareness of he is our father. We are his children. We are together brothers and sisters. And all are welcome. And all come and be a part. With all of the risks and self-protections and walls and vulnerabilities and hurts that we all bring to the table. We come together and find healing because of our father, because of our older brother, most of all, because of the covenant. Thank you, Lord, for who we are in you. Outside of you, we have nothing. In you, we have everything. And like you said to the older son, why are you mad? You've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. Thank you, God, for that inheritance. May we as the family of God embrace the vulnerability of what it means to be in a family. For each of the families represented here, each of the families that you have named, God, open our hearts and minds to what it means for us to be vulnerable as families, both within and without. Thank you, Lord, for what you are working in us. Thank you that our safety lies in you. And that what you have, what has been broken, you are healing. That what has been pulled down, you are restoring. That the self-protections that we've built can fall because we can fall together on you. We bless you. We love you. We thank you. You are our good Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.